Dear Lord, you say in your word that you honor your word above your very name. And Father, how much must it be that you love your word then? For we know that your name is the name above all names. So Father, how must we attend to your word in light of that? We must be like Mary, who sat at your feet and put aside any of the cares of the day. We must be, Father, like um, the Queen of Sheba, who traveled from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom that you gave Solomon. We need to be, Father, like those who followed your Son throughout the Galilee, seeking for his wisdom, for his power, for his healing. And as your Son said, Father, we must be willing to turn aside from everything, even our very parents, if that be necessary, in order to follow you, Father. So with that in mind, we, we take a, a serious and sober appreciation of the text before us tonight. We do not handle it lightly. We do not consider it idly. We put our full attention to it, Father, for it has been given to us for great and eternal purposes. And even if in the moment we read it, we may not understand all that it holds. In fact, Father, it's a given that we will not understand all that it holds. Nevertheless, there's something there for us today that you have prepared, and we know that. And so, Father, this time is appointed, and the purposes you have, Father, are according to your will. Let us be open in our hearts and our ears and our minds, all of, all of us, that we would receive what you have for us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuses, excuses. We all hate hearing them, but we all love to rely on them, don't we? Israel certainly loved to rely on them. We're in the middle of studying a series of excuses that Israel was offering back in Ezekiel's day during the early years that the exiles spent living by the river Kebar in Babylon as captives. We studied last week in this chapter that they were living in a kind of self-denial. They told themselves they need not worry about all that Ezekiel was telling them, all of the dire prophecies of coming judgment. Now they don't need to worry about all of that because... When Ezekiel said their city was going to be destroyed, the people would be barred from entry into Jerusalem for centuries, they just responded with excuses. They responded specifically with eight excuses, according to the book of Ezekiel. Eight reasons why they didn't need to pay attention to Ezekiel's words, that he was wrong, that there was another explanation for these matters, and that God couldn't do the kinds of things that Ezekiel said He was going to do. Now, we're in the middle of studying these eight excuses that they offered, and this goes back to chapter 12. We jumped into it in chapter 16. But across eight chapters in this section of the book, Ezekiel is taking apart the eight excuses that the people around him were using. And the Lord is working through Ezekiel to show how these excuses are complete nonsense. We're in the middle of excuse number five, which began in chapter 15, and it continues now into chapter 16. The excuses, by the way, are not lined out in the text. It's not as though you're going to be able to open up the book and find the excuses in there, you know, number one, number two. It doesn't quite work that way. Rather, you understand what the people were saying by noticing how the Lord responds. We can understand what they must have said to generate the kind of response the Lord gives. In this case, we learned last week that Israel's fifth excuse went this way. They said, we're not in jeopardy of judgment. And the reasoning was... Because our covenant with the Lord protects us. God wouldn't wipe Jerusalem off the map. He wouldn't bar his people from the land for hundreds of years because that would violate his promises to the nation, or so they thought. And now we saw the Lord's first part of the response he gives them in chapter 15. And in chapter 15, using an allegory of a grapevine in the midst of a forest of big trees, he just pointed the exiles to the reality of their present circumstances in Babylon. Using that allegory, he emphasized, you're a weak nation. You've been twice defeated already by this powerful enemy, two times already. Nebuchadnezzar has led his army down and defeated you. You're now sitting in exile in Babylon. And so your present circumstances, God saying to Israel, those present circumstances are proof that the covenant that God has with you did not preclude such calamities. They had no reason to think then that it couldn't happen again. 
And now we move from there into the chapter we are currently studying, into chapter 16. And at the first part of this chapter, we find a new allegory now, a second allegory to illustrate why the covenant does not protect Israel from retribution. And in this new allegory, as you remember from last week, the Lord compares his relationship to Israel with a husband's relationship to a wife. And in the allegory that we read already, you find this wife who uh, starts actually as a child, as an infant, who is abandoned out in the field by a mother who didn't want her. And the Lord portrays himself as a husband who came upon this poor child squirming in its blood, as he says. He took her into his care and raised her up. And then when she reached marrying age, the Lord then made this woman his wife. And he cares for her lovingly and graciously. And he bestows great gifts upon her and so on. But rather than remain faithful and grateful, Israel, the wife, turns on her husband in the allegory. She rents herself out as a prostitute to passers-by, the Lord says. And to make things worse, instead of being paid as the typical prostitute would be paid, his wife, Israel, took all the beautiful things that she received from her husband and she paid her clients in the allegory, which is to say in literal terms, Ezekiel is describing how Israel chose to pursue idolatry rather than remaining faithful to the Lord, sacrificing the gifts and the blessings God gave to her, to Israel, to these false idols. So God says Israel played the harlot with the gods of her enemies. And as a result, Israel provoked her husband, the Lord, to respond in jealousy and in wrath. Now, that's the key of this chapter. That's the key thing we studied. That's sort of where we ended last week. That rather than preventing the disaster as the excuse considered, rather than preventing the disaster, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, actually called for Israel to suffer these things as a result of disobedience. So it was the marriage covenant. Go back to the allegory for a moment. It was the marriage covenant that prompted the husband's strong reaction against the wife's behavior, right? I mean, in other words, the covenant relationship that that man had with his wife, it didn't tie his hands from disciplining his wife or responding to her unfaithfulness. Quite the contrary, it was because there was a covenant that he responded in those ways. Without a covenant, he wouldn't have cared at all what she did, right? And likewise, it was Israel's covenant with the Lord that prompted his strong reaction against her for her disobedience. That covenant, the old covenant as we call it, or the Mosaic covenant, obligated God in the law to respond to Israel one way or another. If she responded in obedience to the commandments she was given, there would be blessing here in her existence on earth. But if the nation did not respond in obedience, then the Lord would be obligated to bring, as he put it, curses upon her. That is, to bring this chastening, this kind of justice or response. And in the law itself, Israel is warned at numerous places that God is a jealous God, even using the language of marriage. And that if they did not honor their commitment to the Old Covenant, there would be a price to pay. So here you find now, in Ezekiel's day, the nation coming to that reckoning, having played the harlot, having worshipped false gods, and yet they say their covenant is what will protect them from the Lord, yet it is that covenant that will ensure this outcome that Ezekiel promises. You know what they should have done? They should have imagined themselves as they were, which was as a cheating wife, who's been discovered by a jealous husband. How does that usually go? If they had just seen it in those terms, they might have said to themselves, will a husband in those circumstances say to himself, I can't do anything about this situation because after all, she's my wife. Or will he say, I must do something to correct my wife's behavior and bring her back to me because she is my wife. You see the difference? And that's what the Lord's saying to Israel in this allegory. So let's complete chapter 16 tonight. And we go now as to the new section as the Lord explains how in jealousy and wrath he intends to respond to his wife, to Israel, as a husband should respond to a wife in sin under these circumstances. So verse 35, he says, Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, And because of the blood of your sons, which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction, 
and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged, and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me by all these things, behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. All right, well, the the graphic language in the allegory continues on. I said last week that some of these things are quite rough, reflecting the Lord's concerns, obviously. And now you see a, a jealous husband taking corrective action against his unfaithful wife. I mentioned last week that in this day and age, in this culture, with the man of the home, the patriarch being the absolute authority in his home, certainly over his wife as well, He had a a range of options available to him in the culture for how he could respond to a wife under these circumstances. So as harsh as this language may sound to us, husbands who would have heard this from Ezekiel, now I'm thinking of the men of Israel in that day, who would have heard him say these words, they would have understood, and I would suspect even sympathized a little with what the Lord is saying here, because as husbands, they would have done these very same things to their own wife had their wives done what you see Israel doing in this allegory. Because the wife's behavior here is nothing short of outrageous, almost without equal, due severe penalties in the law. So in the allegory, her husband has no recourse here except to let her experience the full weight of her mistakes. And that's what the Lord's doing now for Israel. Israel committed idolatry. She exposed her nakedness, which we learned last week as a way of saying her sin, before her enemies, before God's enemies. She, in that way, shamed the name of the Lord, who had identified himself with Israel, before all of these pagan and ungodly nations, and even went so far, as you saw there, to murder her own children when she engaged in child sacrifice. So the Lord says, I'm going to bring all of this back on you, and I'm going to begin by sending your own suitors against you, further humiliating Israel, bringing those nations against her whose gods Israel went after. Now there's an interesting play in words here uh, in the Hebrew, because in Hebrew the words naked and exile are virtually the same word. So what he's saying is because Israel exposed herself to her enemies in idolatry, naked before them, in other words. Therefore, the Lord is going to exile Israel into her enemies' hands. Play on words. Verse 38, the Lord says, I'm going to be treating Israel the way the law, the same covenant now that they're in, the law requires a harlot or an idolater or a murderer to be judged. So in other words, in the law, those crimes were all punishable by death, although in different ways. An adulterer or a murderer was to be stoned, while an idolater was to be killed by the sword. So there's a little irony building here. (laughs) Israel was not willing to abide by this covenant. They have forsaken the covenant in serious ways. Nevertheless, the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to be faithful to this covenant, even if you won't. And I'm going to be faithful now by applying its penalties against you said this, I think, in the past, but there was a phrase we would sometimes use with our kids, which is if they did the wrong thing and then they asked us not to apply the punishment that came with that bad behavior, we would say, look, you did the wrong thing. Don't expect me to follow that by doing the wrong thing by not punishing you. That is, by not holding you accountable. That's what the Lord's saying. The Lord's punishments came against Israel in the form of what we already know, an army, Babylon, devastating the city, devastating the temple, taking the rest of the people out of it. And many were killed, The rest were taken into captivity. In an earlier chapter in this book, there's a point in which God warns those who were left in the city through Ezekiel. And he says, when I send Babylon, throw your hands up, walk out the door, and give in. Surrender. And if you do, you'll be taken captive, but you'll live. Fight the army that I sent to take you captive, and you're going to die in the city. Choose one. He's even told them how it's going to go down. Notice in verse 39, 
the Lord says Israel is going to be delivered into the hands of her, quote, lovers, referring to those pagan nations. And as promised, Babylon came, and it burned those homes, and it took away the shrines, took away their possessions, left the city and the people bare, just as he said it would happen. And it also resulted in the nation losing free access to her land and to her temple for hundreds of years, which is what Ezekiel predicted back in chapter 4. Now, I know in 70 years, you may know this, in 70 years, there's going to be a ragtag group of refugees who come back and do their best to reestablish a temple and, and the city. And Nehemiah builds the wall, and we know that story, I hope. But they are still under the authority of the Persians at that point. And later they were under the authority of the Greeks, and later the Romans. In other words, they lose this free access they've become accustomed to going back to David for their land and for their temple, autonomous, free of any outside control. That's gone for them. And that's gone for them for a long time. Notice in verse 41 as it ends, the Lord promises that this harsh judgment will result in some good outcome. This is all headed somewhere useful. It will cause Israel to cease playing the harlot. Back earlier in chapter 16, 40 through 41, you notice he says he's going to cut Israel into pieces. That's an illusion because in the way that's being discussed, an idolater would be killed by a sword. So he's drawing from that illusion. In literal terms, what he's saying is, I'm going to scatter you. So they're going to be scattered, but that's to the point of ceasing harlotry. Because of Israel's experience in Babylon, they no longer pay their lovers they no longer make gifts and sacrifice to idols. As I said last week, the history of Israel demonstrates that their time in Babylon put to rest forever idolatry among Jews. The Jewish nation has never again gone back to idolatry since the time of the Babylonian captivity. They have remained faithful to the Yahweh of their Old Testament, to Jehovah God ever since. Now, that's not to say they're all believers. It's not to say they aren't sinning in many other ways. But they've never embraced false gods again since that time. And in verse 42, the Lord says, Because I'm going to put you through this, and because you're going to repent ultimately, in the end, he says, my fury then will be pacified. Verse 43, he summarizes. He says, the nation will see the consequences of their sins come down on their heads. Now, I want you to take another look real briefly at verse 41 again. Notice where he says that many women would witness Israel's downfall. Now, that refers to the other idolaters, the other nations that surround Israel, those ungodly cultures that compromise Israel's walk, um, the people that Israel turned to in worship instead of turning to God. Those are the women, if you will. and They're like other wives, if you will. And in that way of thinking, of thinking of the nations that surround Israel as other women for a minute in this allegory, the Lord takes that thought and he elaborates on it now in verses 44 and onward, explaining what he meant by Israel being judged in the sight of these other women. Look what he says, verse 44. He, he says, Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother, who loathed her husband and children. You are also the sister of your sisters, who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father was an Amorite. Now your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance and abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty. And committed abominations before me, and therefore I removed them when I saw it. Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half of your sins, for you have multiplied your abominations more than they. Thus you've made your sisters appear righteous by all your abominations which you've committed. Also, bear your disgrace in that you have made judgment favorable for your sisters. Because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, they are more in the right than you. Yes, be also ashamed and bear your disgrace in that you made your sisters appear righteous. Now, you may remember from last lesson how the Lord described Israel in verse 3 in the earlier part of this chapter as a love child, basically, of an Amorite father and a Hittite mother. 
And what we learned when we looked at that last time, it's a poetic way of saying that Jerusalem and Israel were not inherently better than the pagan Canaanites that lived in the land before they came along. Uh, It took the Lord to find her, as he pictured in that allegory, and pick her up and care for her and make her beautiful that gave Israel any worth at all. Otherwise, they're just nothing. And now he's returning to that same comparison, saying Israel is now going to become the source of a proverb, like mother, like daughter. And the mother and then the sisters in this allegory are those idolatrous nations around Israel, as I mentioned. In fact, as you see, he names them. He says the mother was the Hittites. And that's just a way of saying all the Canaanite people. So you were birthed, geographically speaking, Israel was birthed out of a Canaanite culture as God planted Abraham in the land. And Jerusalem itself was a Jebusite city before it became David's city. And then you have the older sister. He says, that's Samaria. And then the younger sister, as you saw, is Sodom. In the Hebrew text, they're actually described as left and right, not north and south. And here's why. Because in order for Samaria to be on the left and Sodom to be on your right, you have to be facing east. And east in the Bible is a direction associated with evil, with ungodliness, with sin. Now, west is good, east is bad in the Bible when it has a symbolic suggestion. Abraham was taken from the east, sent to the west. Promised land is in the west. Cain sinned and was sent east. The garden is in the east when the fall happened. There's these directions in Scripture all the time that connote or suggest sin or, or redemption. And so he's kind of using that in a passing way here to say Israel's facing sin. Israel's facing the east. And you've got sisters on either side of you in the respect of north and south. But even worse, Israel is overachieving in comparison to these sisters when it comes to sin. And he goes on to make comparisons, beginning with the city of Sodom. Now, it's hard for us, if you know the Bible at all, it's hard to consider that anyone could be compared to Sodom and come out on the worst side of that comparison, right? But he says, and it's not a, an exaggeration, he says the people of Jerusalem and of Israel acted worse than those of Sodom. And we all know how bad Sodom was, right? They're immortalized in the Bible for their depraved conduct. The New Testament goes a step further and tells us that when the Lord destroyed that city in such a dramatic way, He did it as an example for all ages of what happens when you're ungodly. Peter says in 2 Peter 2.6 that He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So they're literally the poster children for ungodliness. And then in verses 49 through 50, God kind of recaps how Sodom got to that point. You know, we all think about the gross immoralities that we know are captured in Genesis about what was going on in that city, men taking men and the like. But it didn't start there. Namely, it says the people of Sodom were first arrogant because the Lord had blessed them so much. They had abundant food. They had a carefree lifestyle. Remember Lot when he separates from Abraham. Why does he choose to go down to the city of of Sodom? It says in the text, because he took note of how well watered the plain was and how prosperous everything looked down there. It was from a distance. It was obviously a prosperous, blessed area. And that prosperity made the Sodomites haughty, it says, haughty, proud, thinking that they had everything, wealth and self-sufficiency. They could do whatever they wanted. And remember what we learned last week about this pattern? For those of you who were here last week, that there's this constant or this consistent pattern in Scripture for how we turn away from God. It always starts with God blessing something or someone. Blessing is from God. That starts the relationship. But as that blessing takes root in someone's life, it leads to pride. If they're prone to sinning, it leads to pride. Pride causes us to forget our dependence on God and then to act independent of God. Now, that was Satan's pattern. He started as the most blessed creature in creation, and that created pride, we heard last week, and that led to his fall. We saw the same pattern with Adam. He had everything going for him. Then he decided it was so good he could do whatever he wanted. That led to sin. The same thing has happened with Israel as a nation. God has blessed them abundantly, set them up as the chief nation in in his eyes on the world scene, and they became haughty, proud, and then the fall came from there. And it was also Sodom's pattern. It's everyone's pattern. In Sodom's case, what it eventually drove them to was gross immorality and a sexual nature. That was not the worst thing. Apparently, Israel managed to beat them. Israel probably committed most, if not all, of the same sins that Sodom was known for at different times and different places. I don't think we can look at Israel's history 
and assume that they never engaged in the kind of immorality that Sodom did, I would actually consider that to be a likely case. But even if they didn't do that, they did something worse. They killed their own children on altars. There's no evidence in Scripture that Sodom ever stooped that low. And then there were the Samaritans. That's the people group that live in sort of central Israel in the mountains. They're a mixed Jewish-Gentile heritage, and they sought to be recognized as true Jews, though they weren't. They kind of counterfeited Judaism. But in reality, they were just pagan worshipers who sort of took Judaism and turned it into a pagan version of it. Much in the same way that Mormonism takes the veneer of Christianity and turns it into a pagan uh, substitute for true Christianity. But despite being pagan, the Lord says that the nation, the, the people of Samaria, were still better than the Jews. They didn't even do half of what Judaism did, or what Israel did. Samaritans, for one thing, never allowed prostitution into their temple on Mount Gerizim, that we know of anyway. There's no evidence they ever corrupted their priesthood the way Israel did. There's no evidence they ever started worshiping Canaanite gods. I mean, they may have been pagans playing Judaism, but they did it really well. Again, another parallel to Mormonism. Isn't it interesting? You know, Mormons are very upright, upstanding, strict, and keeping with all their rules, and it makes them appear very pious. They just have the wrong rules. They just have the wrong God. And, of course, the Samaritans never engaged in child sacrifice. So here again, Israel did all those things, and I should add, by the way, they did them while looking down their noses at the Samaritans, who they thought were half-breeds and the worst of the worst. Israel, by the way, I should also add, they acted in all these terrible ways, though they had the knowledge of the living God, and they had possession of His law to guide them. So, the text says that Samaritans were actually ashamed of the Jews, south of them, for what they were engaged in. So the Lord says that Israel made her sisters appear righteous by comparison. And here's where it gets interesting. He says, as a result, the Lord is going to show mercy to her enemies in the judgment that will befall Israel. Remember, the Lord's using a pretty blunt instrument here when He brings judgment on Israel. He's bringing a big army, sweeping through the land, destroying and capturing cities and destroying things and so on. It's not a very surgical strike. And yet, in the way it actually carried out in history... The Babylonians, by and large, left the Samaritans alone, probably because the Samaritans were willing to fall in line and didn't object, didn't fight back the way the Jews did. And although Sodom had been wiped out in the disaster God brought on it earlier, that region still had people in it. We call them Edomites. And the Edomites were left to live there as well. They weren't deported. They weren't exiled. So the Lord says, I'm going to bring a disaster upon you that in fairness to your sisters who didn't do half of what you did, they're not even going to see the same things you are. My own people are going to see a worse outcome than the ungodly pagan nations around you because you found a way to be worse than they were. And so the Lord says, this is what's coming. And then he adds that it's not the end of the nation. He's going to bring them back into their land. And here's the kicker. When Israel comes back into the land, those neighbors, those sisters are going to be there waiting for her. And the descendants of those Samaritans and Sodomites or Edomites are going to remember the sins of Israel that prompted that whole disaster in the first place, and they're not going to be happy about it. Look where we go in verse 53. He says, Nevertheless, I will restore their captivity, referring to those other nations, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters, the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, and along with them your own captivity in order that you may bear your humiliation and feel ashamed for all that you have done when you become a consolation to them. Your sisters, Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters, will return to their former state, and you with your daughters will also return to your former state. As the name of your sister Sodom was not heard from your lips in your day of pride, before your wickedness was uncovered, so now you have become the reproach of the daughters of Edom and all Uh, and of all who are around her, and of the daughters of the Philistines, those surrounding you who despise you. You have borne the penalty of your lewdness and abominations, the Lord declares. Isn't a great passage for showing that the justice of the Lord knows no limits? He's not a respecter of persons. I would also say, understanding this section requires some appreciation for the poetic nature of what he's saying here, because the Lord starts by saying, 
Um, nevertheless, at the beginning of verse 53, which means in spite of how bad you've been, Israel, nevertheless, I'm going to restore you from captivity one day. You're, getting, you're going to come back one day. That's the promise that this captivity is not the end of you. But likewise, when Israel returns, they're going to find Samaria and the Edomites, the Sodomites, as he says here, they'll also have been restored from captivity. Now that's where this gets confusing for some people because we know that Sodom and Samaria were not taken into captivity. What you have to do is understand the Lord is speaking circumspectly here. That is, he's using the word captivity to represent judgment in general so that he can draw a connection between Israel and these other nations. So he can talk in similar terms. You went into captivity, you'll be restored. They're going to be restored too, but in this different sense. They're not literally coming back from Babylon, but they're going to rise up again. And they're going to continue to be there and to be a thorn in Israel's side. Which is that Israel was judged for her sin and she will be restored after a time of judgment. But God also gave a lesser judgment to Samaria and Sodom for their sins, lesser comparatively. And they will also have an opportunity, their descendants will have an opportunity to be restored. And we know this is true because the Samaritans were still there in Jesus' day. The Edomites were still there in Jesus' day and so on. He restored them. And here's why, he says, I'm restoring them because Israel has behaved worse than they did, and I have to restore you. Think about the fairness thing here. They did less than you, and yet I have to restore you because of a covenant relationship that's going to take us further. I would be unjust to wipe them out with the same judgment, though they're less culpable. So I'm going to restore them, at least for a time, as a way of showing you, you had worse problems. Notice in verse 55, he says, Your sisters will return to their former state, and you to your former state. In other words, you're going to have the same outcome they're going to have because I can't treat them differently. And he says in verse 52, Israel's depravity made judgment favorable for her enemies. She sinned so much, she gave opportunity for her enemies to get excuse. In verse 54, he adds that as Israel became a consolation to her neighbors, she will feel ashamed at what her behavior produced in the land. The point is this. Israel's going to be a source of consolation to Samaria and Edom because they're going to be able to look at Israel and say, okay, this is their God who did this, and they fared worse than we did. I guess we should be happy with how it turned out for us. It could be worse. We could be God's people. That's the irony of this consolation. And in seeing the Lord treating Gentile pagan people better than he treated his own people will bring even more shame on Israel as they take in that difference and they appreciate that difference. It would be like a wayward wife watching her husband give greater mercy to a neighbor's wife than he does to her. It would just emphasize to her the point of how much damage she's done or how much she's hurt that relationship. And then there's one final irony. The Lord says in in verses 56 and 57 that though back in the day Israel wouldn't have dared to pronounce the name of Sodom. Sodom was a word you didn't pronounce because they were supposed to be a a city that would be in shame into perpetuity. And it was the city that shall not be named. You know, that was the way they looked at it, right? The Lord says to Israel, guess whose name won't be spoken in the future? The people of Edom and the people in the Philistine cities in the region of Samaria aren't even going to mention Jerusalem or the Jews for at least a time, you will become the unmentionable. And that's the penalty for your lewdness and your abomination, he says. So in summary, verse 59, this is a summary. For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Here's what he just said. The Lord said, I'm going to deal with you the way you dealt with my covenant. That is, you despised the covenant of God, at least for a while, So I'm going to despise you, at least for a while. And at this point, you may be tempted to wonder, gosh, isn't God taking this a little far? I mean, what about forgiveness? What about mercy and love? I mean, you know, they are in covenant. And yeah, they messed up. They made a lot of bad mistakes. But, you know, I've done my share of those too. I'm kind of worried a little bit here. Is this how we, is this God? Vengeful God? Uh, You know, have you ever heard someone suggest that the God of the Old Testament has to be different than the God of the New Testament. A person would read a passage like this one and they think, God, this, is, this doesn't seem like a very loving God. 
But then they'll turn to the Gospels and they'll see Jesus say things like, turn the other cheek or love your enemy. And they think, okay, that can't be the same God. I can't reconcile those two perspectives in Scripture. Anybody ever had this conversation with someone? Or maybe you just felt this yourself and you've wondered. But we know God hasn't changed. That's something we know from Scripture. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we know He's holy and He's perfect and He's good. There is no sin in Him. There is no iniquity in God. So that would mean that the problem has to be in our perspective. It has to be. Because if you lose the appreciation of the Lord's purposes in what He does, well, then naturally you're going to start to question His goodness in some circumstances when what He does doesn't sound very good to our ears. And you also may overlook obvious differences between how God and mankind operate with one another. And as you judge his methods, rather than seeking to understand his motives or his purposes, you lose sight of the big picture. These are all ways in which our mind gets out of sync with the text. In this case, how do we reconcile that? Well, first, if you're not careful, you're going to overlook the difference between God and man when it comes to relationships. There are differences between our relationships to people and our relationship with God. Those are not the same. I mean, we do use analogies a lot. He's our father. Oh, I have a father. I know how that works. Um, we, we think like, or he's my groom and I'm the bride. Okay, we kind of understand that a little bit. We, we, we think we understand. And we talk about God, you know, running into the arms of God. We think the prodigal son and the prodigal father. Oh, that's like us running into the arms of God. And I've had people write to me and say, when I die and go to heaven, will I be able to run into Jesus' arms? I'm like, I don't think it's going to work quite like that. Okay, just the creator God doesn't stand up there hugging everybody constantly all day long. It's, it's childlike faith and it's okay, but it's not biblical thinking about the God who's going to... If you want proof of that last one, if you're kind of wondering, wait a minute, I think he'll hug me. Um, First of all, you're probably not as huggable as you think you are. But no, seriously, when Jesus saw John in Revelation, did they have a big bear hug there on on the island of Patmos? No, John was on his face, prostrate, scared. That's the same John who was in the bosom of Jesus at the Last Supper, right? Something changed after he was resurrected, didn't it? The God you saw walking around humble endowed with mercy on a donkey is different than the one you'll see coming in glory to reign. It's just the way it's going to go. Okay, That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. But what it does remind us is that we have to be careful about taking childlike thinking beyond being a child. And in these matters especially. There's a difference between how we relate to people and how God relates to us, and therefore His instructions regarding how we relate to one another and how we relate to Him will be different. For example, Jesus tells believers... Um, to be forgiving of each other, and that we are to also be forgiving of the enemies we have in the world among unbelievers. Remember, he tells believers we're to forgive each other 70 times 7, which is a way of saying forever. Um, And if you ever suppose you have a right to be unforgiving toward another believer, like they've done something that's unforgivable, or they've done enough that you can't get past it, you know what? That's a sign you're taking your own forgiveness with Christ for granted. Because Jesus told Simon, the self-righteous Pharisee, in Luke seven forty seven, he said, For this reason I say to you, speaking of the prostitute in the room, he says, Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. He's not saying that Simon had little to forgive. That's not what he was saying. Jesus is saying, if you can keep in mind how much you've been forgiven, then you can't help but love others unconditionally. But when you forget how much sin you have, when you minimize it, when you seem to sweep it under the rug... You know, conveniently forget it. And therefore, you forget how much the Lord has forgiven you. Well, that allows your pride to sort of take control. And that leads to an unloving, unforgiving attitude toward others. I've always said you can never judge another person without assuming you have a superior position. Judging by its very nature is a looking down process. So Jesus said we're to be unconditionally forgiving to our brothers and sisters without limit. And the reason is because you can't outforgive Christ for what he's forgiven you. Secondly, we were told to love our enemies for the same reason. Christ loved us while we were yet his enemy, Paul says. Had Christ waited for you to love him first, you wouldn't have ever been loved by Christ. So again, we're called to follow his footsteps, being forgiving to those who hate us or persecute us, and doing so without condition, hoping to win them over. Now that's the New Testament view, right? So the New Testament calls for believers to turn the other cheek in that respect, or to be forgiving and loving, because that's what God did for us. But is that a contradiction to what we see God doing here for Israel? No, because he's not a human being. Because he's not dealing with another God. He's dealing with 
his creation. See the difference? God has no need to be forgiven of anything. He's not bound by the rules that he set for his own creation. Moreover, he is the judge of his creation. So eventually, everything in his creation must face his judgment, one way or another. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17, It is the time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, then what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? His point simply is, there's judgment for both. One's better than the other, but everybody's going to get looked at. Our judgment is not for the question of whether we go to heaven or not. Our judgment is for the question of what we will receive as a reward. But everybody's going to get looked at. We can't turn to God then and condemn Him when He chooses to bring righteous judgment. That's the right thing for a judge to do. To do otherwise would be unjust. So we can't turn God's words against Him, claiming, Oh God, you told us to turn the other cheek. You should turn the other cheek. That's that's a non sequitur. In fact, to the contrary... Every single day that the Lord delays His judgment against any sinner on earth is grace and mercy to that sinner. Would you not agree? And when the Lord finally does bring judgment, you have no reason or right to question it at that point, right? Like Jesus says, He brings the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Which really means this, that God has been turning the other cheek, so to speak, against every sinner on earth far more and for far longer than any of us have ever done for anyone. So, on what basis do we stand and look at God and say, you know, you're being awful harsh with Israel. How many centuries did he have to wait before we finally say, okay, go ahead, whack them, they deserve it. I mean, how long? It's not like he just said, oh, one mistake, they're gone. This is centuries of time. And it led up to and included killing their own children. That brings us to the second point. We can mistakenly judge God's methods instead of considering His purposes. He is long-suffering. The testimony of Scripture is nothing if not a testimony of His long-suffering nature. And yet, when He acts, He does so with the intent to restore, not to destroy. Look, friends, if it was God's intention to destroy, the world and everything in it would not have existed one minute past Adam's sin. I mean, self-evidently, he has a plan to restore, and he's on the path of doing that. So when you look at Israel and you consider all that they did over their history to violate that covenant, you have to ask that question. How many centuries is, is he obligated to wait before bringing some kind of consequence? How many years does he stand by while prostitutes operate in the temple? How long does he allow Israel to give gifts to foreign gods on high places? How many prophets does he send to them with warnings only to watch those prophets get killed by the people he's trying to warn. And how many Jewish children should he let be slaughtered? So, again, if you're tempted to question God's love or his willingness to show forgiveness, let me ask you, would you have waited as long as he did in Israel's case? I doubt you would. I really doubt any of us, if we had been in that position, would have decided to let it go as long as God did. We probably would have cut him off a lot sooner. And yet God, in his holiness, waited and waited and waited for centuries. So I don't think there's any case to be made for the God of the Old Testament being any less forgiving, any less loving than the one of the New Testament is in light of what he is willing to do for his people. And he shows more patience than we do. He has a plan of redemption and restoration, not one of destruction. He has a carefully calibrated response, which he says in his own word, will result in the end with an Israel who no longer does the kind of things that they were doing, at least not idol worship. And in his omniscience, He says, this is the best way to cure idolatry. We're going to end tonight with the last thing he says, which is that this will not be the end of his people, and there's something greater coming. It's an illusion or a a, a preview, if you will, of what we'll see much later in this book when we get into what's coming in the kingdom. Verse 60, he says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you received your sisters, or when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord declares. All right, one more time, the Lord sort of changes direction here. He says, nevertheless, again, 
Basically, he's saying, I'm not going to leave Israel despised and rejected. Now notice, there's some important covenantal teaching here that I want you guys to see as we finish. It's, we're finishing here over the next ten minutes, but I want you to pay attention if you can, because this sets up some important things to come. In verse 60, the Lord makes what is actually a blockbuster revelation in Ezekiel. The first time you see this in Ezekiel, certainly, and one of the first times it's in the Bible at all, that in the midst of these difficult times for Israel, the Lord is still remembering His covenant. And he notice He names the covenant indirectly. He says, it's the covenant made with Israel in the days of her youth. Which one is that? Well, where was Israel begun? When was she a youth, if you will, a ute? Where was she an infant? It was the Abrahamic covenant. It's the covenant God made with the patriarchs which established the line of Israel. So we're talking here about the Abrahamic covenant. He's saying, I will remember a covenant I made with you, which will then be the basis for your restoration. The Abrahamic covenant was given to Israel hundreds of years prior to the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. And of course, as probably everyone here knows, it has these sweeping promises. I'll just read two verses from Genesis 12 where we hear it for the first time. He says, I will make you a great nation, speaking to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, and I assume most of this is review, but it's important nonetheless. Notice the terms of that covenant did not depend on obedience. All right? It's a suzerainty covenant, as the term goes, which is a one-way grant of privilege from a greater to a lesser. In that covenant, the Lord promised Abraham's descendants they'd have land, they'd have blessing, they'd have peace unconditionally. These things are elaborated on later. And that covenant also made provision, you notice, for other nations to see those same blessings. And these things he's offering are going to come to pass based solely on the Lord's faithfulness to his word. They are not dependent on anything that anyone does in terms of how he carries it out, in terms of how it's going to come to fruition. Later, the Lord took Abraham's descendants. Much later, years, hundreds of years later, he took Abraham's descendants and he gave them another covenant called the Mosaic Covenant. Now that covenant made Abraham's descendants a nation of people. It bound them together by a law and under the authority of God directly. A simple comparison will make the point. We had this land that we now occupy and call the United States. We had this land occupied by people of various backgrounds and allegiances. And they enjoyed the blessings of the land up to a point. And then there came a time when someone wrote a law, and that law became the law of the land, and in the process it formed a nation out of the people that were there. And we call that the Constitution. So the Mosaic Covenant was Israel's constitution. It took a group of people and made them a nation, and gave them a leader, and that leader was God himself. It was a theocracy. It established the rules by which the nation would live. And its purpose was to guard them and guide them in the years while they awaited the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It was a law, a covenant that bound them, guided them and protected them until someday when the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled. And in that law, the Lord said to Israel, if they lived according to the commandments in the law, then the Lord would ensure they'd have great blessing on earth, even now while they awaited the Abrahamic covenant's fulfillment. If they disobeyed the covenant, on the other hand, the Lord would hold the nation accountable. You know what? If you violate the constitution, guess where you're going to find yourself? It's the same principle. Only in the case of the law God gave Israel, he said it's going to be used in an all or nothing fashion. Either the whole nation is obedient and gets the blessing, or the whole nation is disobedient and doesn't. And it doesn't depend on individual behavior. I can't, you know, he's going to bring famine on the whole nation, not just on your block. So the whole nation suffered, the whole nation was blessed based on what they did. It was the old covenant, this Mosaic covenant, that we're seeing compared to a marriage. It's what married the people of God to their God in that covenant relationship. But they already had a relationship with him through a prior covenant. This one formed it in a new way. It mandated Israel's obedience. It subjected her to penalties for disobedience. And it is that covenant, the old covenant, that is now necessitating Israel's exile and all the other judgments that God is pronouncing. That's why they're in what situation they're in, because their old covenant required it. 
The Abrahamic covenant never put any penalties on Israel because it never put any demands on Israel. Now in verse 60, this is where we go into the text. Verse 60, the Lord says, Their calamity in Babylon won't mean the end of the nation because that other covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is sitting there still protecting them. So that no matter how bad things become for Israel, no matter how much they sinned under the old covenant, and it got very bad in the times leading up to this moment, certainly, no matter what, the Abrahamic covenant set a ceiling. The Abrahamic covenant set a limit. God was not going to destroy them. God could not put them out of existence. He could not end the relationship. In other words, the old covenant could do only so much before he had to stop because otherwise he'd violate the Abrahamic covenant, which had promises set for those people and it wasn't conditional on behavior and God had to do it because he said he would do it. Making some sense how the two work together? So the Jewish people could never cease to exist else the Lord would have been unfaithful to Abraham. And the nation couldn't be outside her land forever Otherwise, for the same reason, he would have been unfaithful to his promises to Abraham because he said they will have this land. I will give this land to your descendants. So the Lord has said to Ezekiel to tell Israel now, he says, I'm going to remember that I have a covenant with Abraham, the one I made in Israel's youth. And that covenant ensures that you still have a bright future despite all that you've done. Remember, that covenant had no prerequisites, no preconditions, so one day Israel will have the blessings of the kingdom just like the Lord said. But now the question, how will the Lord move Israel from disobedience to glory so that they can enter the kingdom? Well, that answer comes at the end of verse 60. The Lord says, He will establish yet another everlasting covenant with them. Now, this is not a reference to the Abrahamic covenant, nor is it a reference to the Mosaic covenant, because those covenants have already been established when He wrote these words. He's talking about something new, the new covenant, literally. The Lord promises to give his people a new covenant. And here's how that works. And this is hopefully insight for some of you, if you've ever struggled with covenantal teaching, how they all relate. Here's the easiest way I know how to put it. The new covenant fulfills the promises made to Abraham and the obligations in the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant unites the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant in a sense. It fulfills the promises made to Abraham by covering the sins that separate us from God and from that kingdom. And of course, it does that through the blood of Christ on the cross. And at the same time, the new covenant fulfills the commandments of the Mosaic covenant by assigning us credit for Christ's perfection under the law. So by the new covenant, the Lord will grant both Israel and Gentiles access to glory. And I'm going to repeat this to make sure you understand what I just said. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bring you and all nations a blessing, which we later find out through elaboration, is this kingdom, this ability to live in glory with the Lord in his land, in the land. Israel in her land and other nations in their lands. In this time that we're all waiting, the kingdom. How do we get there? Because only people of faith, only people of glory, only sinless people can enter into the presence of God. How do we get there? Well, we needed another way to get there. The covenant that God struck through the blood of Christ wipes us of our sin, puts us into a, a state of, of glory by having us follow in the footsteps of Christ. He is resurrected, we're resurrected. He got a body of perfection, we'll have a body of perfection. That's how we enter, is through the blood of Christ. And then how does Israel satisfy the terms of the old covenant so that they're no longer under its penalties? Well, by the same way, by Christ's fulfilling of the covenant. Him doing everything the law required means His perfection stands in my place. I get credit for what He did under the law. I don't have to try to do it myself, which is a pointless effort anyway, because I can't. So in the new covenant, God satisfies all the expectations He set forth in the other two. Notice in verse 61, the Lord tells Israel that in the day these things are fulfilled, Israel's evil sisters will become her daughters. Now, as sisters, the Samaritans and the Edomites shared in Israel's sins. They're just poster children for all the bad Gentile nations, if you will. They were just like Israel in that they were pagan and ungodly. But now, as daughters, they represent the Gentile nations who will share in Israel's glory. So what the Lord is describing here is how Israel will see these very same people groups again in the kingdom when they'll all be children of God by faith. 
Now notice at the end of verse 61, this is where it gets interesting. Look at the end of verse 61. The Lord says, the Gentiles will be with Israel as daughters, but not because of your covenant. This is a bit of a poke in the eye to the Jew who was proud over their old covenant. That old covenant, that when he talks about your covenant, there's only one covenant in the Bible, only one covenant in the Bible that is strictly for the Jewish people. Which covenant never includes Gentiles and is only for Israel? That we could truly say is your covenant, speaking to Israel. The Mosaic covenant. It's the only covenant in which no Gentile has a part to play. We have no, none of us were there at the Mount Sinai. None of us descend from Abraham. None of us have anything to do with the old covenant whatsoever. And... All covenants were given to Israel anyway. Abrahamic covenant was given to Israel. New covenant was given to Israel. But we share in it because they all have a part in it for Gentile nations. All nations will be included in it. So when he says, these other nations will be there with you, but not by your covenant, because no one enters the kingdom by the old covenant. The Gentiles will receive what God has promised to Israel because of that same new covenant. And in that day to come, the people of Israel, he says, will be ashamed. Now ask yourself, wait a minute. Why would anyone be ashamed in that time? And gain some biblical insight as you consider this. In that day, Israel, it says, will be ashamed by memories of their past behavior before God. And they're going to be surprised to see their ungodly neighbors included in God's plan. And in that moment, the Lord says, Israel will remember that she acted so badly toward God when she should have known better. Meanwhile, ungodly Gentiles who lacked the law of God had acted better than they did, and now we're all here together, and ooh, isn't that awkward? (laughs) Meanwhile, Israel's immediate future was still bleak, but their ultimate future was bright because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So what he promised Abraham, he now affirms to Israel that they will receive it ultimately through a new covenant, with one of the effects being that it will make, as you see here, all Israel know the Lord. That's another important promise here as we finish. Israel was in the midst of of terrible judgment because they couldn't obey the word of the Lord. They couldn't keep the law. That's why they are where they are. And in fact, most of them were probably unbelieving, even as it is today in Israel. And so if they're ever going to get into the kingdom and get what was promised, they have to reach a point where they stop making these mistakes and their heart is true and Obey, obedient to God, that means they've got to have a new heart. They've got to have a spirit inclined to obey, not one that won't. They have to essentially be sinless. And the Lord says, part of what I'm going to give you in this new covenant is the sinlessness you require to get into the kingdom. That's what the new covenant solves as well. He says, it results in Israel knowing that I am the Lord. And in that day, the, the nation, it says, will remember its past disobedience with some regret, perhaps. And I like that. For one reason, or I I find that interesting for one reason, it suggests that in eternity, in the kingdom, we may have some degree of recollection about how we used our time here on earth. And by that recollection, we may carry a certain degree of appreciation for missed opportunities. If that's true, well, let that motivate you a little bit to make the most of the opportunity you have now to serve Christ and love your neighbor. More importantly, he says, they'll never open their mouth again in objection or disobedience. They'll live in peace, forgiven by God for all they've done. I love the fact this chapter ends with that. You know, if you never get to that last verse, this is a bit of a downer. But there is a good news story at the end. They're forgiven. They're forgiven by the blood of Christ. They're forgiven by the new covenant. That's what God says is coming for the nation. And of course, it's arrived already, and we're in that now. Ezekiel has a lot more to say about this covenant in weeks to come. By the way, we know that Jeremiah 31.31 is the classic place we go to see the, the New Covenant described. But remember, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were contemporaries. They're both writing about it at the same time. We just don't tend to look at Ezekiel's version as much. But he says many of the same things Jeremiah does. So let's stop there for the night. I hope that was a, a useful set of things for you to consider. We'll come back in two weeks, as I said. And when we do, we pick up again with the sixth excuse. And they all are quite different, so it's not going to be more of the same. There's some different things in each one to consider. And we'll keep moving through this book. Heavenly Father. Thank you, Father, for your limitless forgiveness, it would seem. Certainly for those who are in faith, Father, we can't out the grace that you offer us uh, in the blood of Christ. And we are so thankful for that, not because we want license to sin, certainly, but just out of the reality that we will sin. And how hard it would be to know, Father, that we could hit a limit. That wouldn't be good news at all. But thank you, Father, that You have brought your son into this world to pay a price we couldn't pay and that his perfect life is available to us by faith so that we need not do the works that 
would gain us nothing in the end. But rather we just operate out of a heart of love, seeking to obey and wishing, Father, to please you. Let what we've learned tonight in Ezekiel concerning Israel's situation, let that, Father, just rest in our hearts for a while and give us reason to think twice about what we're doing in our lives and how we might take an inventory of where our life is pleasing and where it isn't and concern ourselves, Father, with how we might be more pleasing knowing what's on the line. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.